I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You know, the British suffered quite a defeat, they say, at Yorktown, the last major land battle of the American Revolution. At least that's the memo I got. And uh, General Charles Cornwallis's decisive loss there to George Washington, that was a bit of a black eye for England, they say. And the Brits did not suffer another black eye that ugly, some say, until a major military defeat in 1916. Where were the British on that occasion? Well, they were near Baghdad. The event called the Siege of Kut. Kut is a place in modern-day Iraq. And after five months of relentless shelling, dwindling rations, failed rescue operations, the British raised a white flag to their enemies, the Ottomans. 33,000 Allied troops perished, and then there were prisoners of war, of course. And this is where our next story on Constant Wonder begins. We are going to hear the, the really bizarre tale of two POWs who conned their way back to freedom by the most mind-blowing of schemes. Harry Jones and Cedric Hill are at the heart of this story. And the best person to tell the tale is our next guest, Marguerite Fox. I want to tell you about her. She's been a senior writer in the New York Times' celebrated obituary news department. She's written front-page public send-offs for some of the leading cultural figures of our era. Today, we are going to be talking about her book, The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. She's on the line with us now, Marguerite Fox. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Marcus. You know, uh, there is a genre styled true crime. And I just laughed out loud when I saw that your book, The Confidence Men, has been pegged by some crazy book vendor named Amazon as fitting in the true crime genre. Uh, That doesn't seem like it's right on target to me. Well, it's hard to classify this whale of a true story. Uh, Some booksellers classify it as true crime. Uh, Some also classify it more narrowly and I think more accurately as hoaxes and deceptions. And what's so extraordinary about this story is that it is indeed one of the only known examples in world history of a con game used for good instead of ill. Yeah, that's what I was hoping to get to right there, because as soon as you hear about con men, you're thinking criminals, but these are POWs. No, and I normally deplore the term elevator pitch because it's so glib, but it serves our purposes masterfully for a moment to get us into the story and to get us where my head was when I first encountered this tale a couple of years ago. If I were to give the elevator pitch of The Confidence Men to an editor or a Hollywood producer, it would go exactly like this. In the depths of World War I, two handsome young British officers escaped from a remote Turkish POW camp by means of a Ouija board. Any (laughs) editor to whom I pitched that would think I was off my rocker. Yet that is exactly what happened. Yeah, uh, you know, um, the, the Ouija board is part of the story, but there's so much more. The facets of, of what these men were capable of doing in terms of deception is really extraordinary. We, we got to start at the beginning, though. Uh, here they are uh, in a part of the world where neither of them come from. One of, one of them's from Australia. Which one was that? That was the co-conspirator, Cedric Hill. The primary architect of the hoax was a brilliant Welsh-born young lawyer. He'd been a barrister in civilian life named Elias Henry Jones, known as Harry Jones. And he indeed was among the 12,000 Britons and Indians taken prisoner after the British surrendered at Kut in the spring of 1916. And as you mentioned, uh, there were several failed attempts to relieve the men at Kut with fresh troops and supplies, all were turned back. And so there were indeed 33,000 
casualties on the British side, where casualty means, of course, killed or wounded, and uh, something like 9,000 on the Ottoman side. It was just a devastating siege in which the British were pinned down in this little town on a peninsula that Ottoman troops quickly sealed off and bottlenecked, pinned down, shelled, shot, and starving to death for five full months. Our hero, Harry Jones, was one of those who survived the siege of Kut only to be put on a two-month-long forced march through desert and over mountains until he reached the isolated POW camp of Yozgat in Anatolia, in modern-day Turkey. He is co-conspirator in this Ouija-guided escape was an Australian-born flyer named Cedric Hill. Uh, what's so fascinating about Hill is military aviation was so new, the airplane had only been around for about a decade when World War I broke out, that Hill, who had dreamed of learning to fly since he was a youth, was not able to enlist in his native Australia. There was no fully functioning Australian military aviation unit yet. In fact, a wonderful footnote in the book, a literal footnote, is that uh, this is how rudimentary the program was. When Australia sent an air mission to the battle in New Guinea in 1914, it sent over a grand total of one airplane, which was never unpacked from its crate. <laughs> one pilot and wanting to join up the enterprising young Cedric Hill sailed to England, where he joined the Royal Flying Corps, the precursor of the RAF. He was posted to the Sinai and Palestine campaign in the Ottoman theater. He was shot down in the desert over Egypt, bravely held off Ottoman forces with, with a rifle, which was very soon an empty rifle, held them off single-handedly for six hours solo in the desert before he too became a prisoner of war. He too was transported to the camp at Yozgad, arriving there also in the summer of 1916, about two weeks after Harry Jones. So tell us about this place, Yozgad, and what you know about it. This was not just a regular POW camp. Wasn't this kind of an institution that was reserved I guess, for officers? It was an officer's camp. Enlisted men were put in forced labor camps in even more devastatingly bad conditions. Um, one observer seeing a work party from such a camp described it as a scene out of Dante's Inferno. So Jones and Hill were very lucky. They were both very junior officers, second lieutenants or lieutenants, as they would say in their countries, but that at least allowed them to be dispatched to an officer's camp where conditions were somewhat better. That said, of all of the constellation of POW camps in the Ottoman Empire, Yozgad was one of the most inaccessible. It was in the mountains, 4,000 feet above sea level. The nearest railway station was at what was then called Angora, today Ankara, five days journey by horse and cart over very, very rough terrain. So it was just about the most isolated Ottoman POW camp there was. And so they put there officers deemed most likely to escape. As I say in the book, it was considered the Alcatraz of its day. What's fascinating is the camp was so inaccessible because of the terrain that there was no barbed wire around it because there didn't need to be. Prisoners were hemmed in first by jagged mountains, second by the Anatolian desert, around, and third, if by some miracle somebody did manage to escape, the countryside was said to be teeming with cutthroat brigands. Many were deserters from the Ottoman army who would basically say, you know, stand and deliver and you give them your purse and they might cut your throat anyway. So all of these things kept the prisoners voluntarily inside the camp. But there was something more, something even worse, 
more concerning that prevented flight. That was by orders of the camp's iron-fisted commandant, any one prisoner who attempted to escape, even if it was just an attempt, would bring down severe reprisals on all of his fellow British prisoners who remained behind. And the reprisals could take the form of lockdown, solitary confinement, and even execution. So being men of honor, the hundred or so British officers interned at Yozgad swore to one another that they would not try to flee. And yet many, including our heroes, Jones and Hill, dreamed of liberty. So the urgent problem was how to attain freedom without compromising their countrymen. Now, you describe something really remarkable, and I, I guess I shouldn't be too wowed by this because boredom will drive people to all sorts of distraction. But uh, the boredom at the camp was such that there was immense creativity that was shown by many of these prisoners. What were they doing? Putting on uh, d- uh, debate clubs and, and uh, staging little musicals or what? little operettas or what have you? That's exactly right. Um, The conditions there compared to, let's say, the horrific conditions that Laura Hillenbrand recounts in Unbroken, where she describes the internment of allied POWs in Japanese camps in the Second World War, the conditions were by no means as terrible as that. The prisoners were rarely physically harmed. They, over time, were able to get enough halfway decent food to eat. They were at least sporadically able to get mail. So the salient, most chronic problem they endured, because by the end of my hoax, uh, my heroes had been confined there two years, was boredom, crushing ennui. They were with the same people day after day after day. They were locked in every night. They couldn't get out they you know, had the same few dog-eared books to read that had been sent by their families in Britain. They told each other the same stories and tried to make themselves laugh at the same jokes. What is so relevant to our time is the prisoners were very clearly on the brink of coming down with a psychological malady that would shortly be named barbed wire disease. It was identified by a Swiss doctor in 1918 based on his studies of World War I prisoners. And it's characterized by nightmares, depression, and crushing ennui and this kind of chronic malaise. Sound familiar to us having gone through the lockdown of 2020? Yeah, there's something something there to be sure, yeah. Yeah, when my literary agent first read the manuscript of The Confidence Men, she was right in the middle of lockdown. She said, I think I have barbed wire disease, (laughs) as did we all. And so indeed, the prisoners put on all sorts of entertainments. They held continuing education classes in a range of subjects. They gave lectures on the jobs they had done in their civilian lives, anything from beekeeping to cow punching to wireless telegraphy. And they put on what the British call a pantomime in the sense of a comic musical show. And of course, since it was only men there, there were these wonderful drag acts uh, as part of the pantomime. The, my favorite thing about it is the pantomime was a send-up of life in the Yozgad prison camp. So there were really raw, unvarnished caricatures of some of their Ottoman captors, particularly the camp commandant, who was a very rigid, cold, iron-fisted guy, and the comical figure of the camp interpreter, a young man they called the pimple because he was short and kind of oleaginous, uh, but the source of some of the book's most hilarious moments. The Turks got wind of the fact that a show was in the work and they were, they needed entertainment too. They were champing at the bit to see it. And so the prisoners thinking quickly and knowing that if the Turks ever did see this show and saw themselves lampooned, 
it would only mean all sorts of punishments for the prisoners. So they very quickly held covertly a performance for one night only with all the prisoners in rapt attendance. And then they immediately told the prison camp staff, oh, we're so sorry, but we had a dress rehearsal last night, but the acting was so bad. We've decided to cancel the show and you'll never be able to see it. (laughs) That's easier than altering the script, I suppose. Exactly. And they wouldn't have wanted to alter the script because these little acts of subversion were part of what allowed them to survive psychologically. Yeah, right, right. Well, I would love to have you describe sort of the the zeitgeist. Uh, 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 There's something going on here in terms of intellectual history, but also spiritualism enters the picture. And we're living in a time when all across uh, from Europe to the United States, even my own grandmother during this time period was invited to seances and such. And and, uh, somehow to pull off the con, the first con with the Ouija board, there has a there's a there's an initial susceptibility, I'm going to say. Could you describe uh, why people at this very progressive moment were still kind of susceptible to the, this movement of spiritualism? Absolutely. And to do that, the best way is for me to go back and explain how I first got onto the story. Uh, our hero, Harry Jones, wrote a memoir just after the war, published in 1919, called The Road to Endor. And it was better known in Britain than in this country. I'm not sure it was published here at the time. And of course, has since slipped into a crevice in history. Very few people know about it today. But I came across it a few years ago and my hair stood on end. I thought two POWs escaped by means of a Ouija board. And it not only did they think to attempt it, but it actually worked. So I, from my 21st century vantage point, thought, how could this crack-brained scheme actually have succeeded? And one of the reasons, as I explain in the book, was that at the time Jones began his con in very early 1918, belief in the existence of the spirit world and belief in the fact that we, the living, through an appropriate medium or through something like a Ouija board could communicate with the spirit world was alive and well. Uh, Modern spiritualism started in the mid 19th century. It reached its apex in late Victorian times. But then of course comes 1914 with the war, gold star families desperate to grasp at any straw that might, they think, allow them to communicate with fallen loved ones. So there's this enormous resurgence of spiritualist belief, 1914 to 1918. So Jones very much had the times on his side. It would be much less viable, I suspect, to embark on a con based on contact via a Ouija board nowadays and expect it to work. But in 1918, you could. Where do you get a Ouija board if you're in the POW camp? The same place you get your beds, your tables, your chairs, your bookshelves. You make them. You make them out of old, rotten packing crates that have been procured at the local bazaar. Uh, a few prisoners were eventually allowed out under guard each day to buy food for their the two houses they occupied in the camp and to buy other things that they need. That's where they got the costumes for their musical show was from uh, pieced together fabric scraps bought at the bazaar. They made wigs out of sheepskins from the bazaar. So too, they made all their furniture from these rotten disassembled packing crates, which they hammered together and transformed into their beds and tables and chairs. And so too, they made the Ouija board from scrap. It went through several iterations, but uh, the board that was most often used and the one that was used in the con game was just a sheet of polished scrap iron. It looks like no Ouija board that we would buy in the dime store today. On top of the sheet, the prisoners had placed a raised wooden ring, like a big wooden donut. And on top of the ring, they had cut out 26 little slips of paper, marked each one with a letter of the alphabet, shuffled them up, randomized them, and then pasted them down 
on top of that ring on the board. Now for a planchette, which is the little plastic pointer that comes with our Ouija boards today, again, they resorted to naking do. They used an inverted water tumbler, which actually had started life as a jar of potted meat that had come in somebody's food parcel. Yeah. The ingenuity there is just tremendous. And from the stories of, of the performances and, and, and putting on satirical plays and what have you, uh, all of this, uh, there's, it's a surreal environment to be in in the first place. And I, I, I guess under the circumstances, even the guards might be under the sway of, uh, of some of this. Uh, they're going to have a little bit of boredom on, on their hands, too. Absolutely. The uh, wartime privations that affected the prisoners equally affected the Ottoman prison camp staff, the Ottoman villagers in the surrounding communities. Everybody was hard up. Everybody was bereft. You know, everybody was dealing with the stresses of being in a terrible war that seemed to be dragging on with no end. And so indeed, um, Jones, who had been a barrister and a magistrate in civilian life and so was skilled in courtroom argumentation, initially started the con game simply as a lark. He was simply entertaining his fellow prisoners with the Ouija board. He says it was just one more thing we tried to do like chess or cards or putting on plays to amuse ourselves and to stave off this crushing boredom that was a hallmark of life in a prison camp. He started that and only later because of a chance remark by one of those captors did Jones think, aha, maybe this innocent evening entertainment can be transformed into something more if I can foment belief in the spirit world among not only my fellow captives, but also our captors maybe, just maybe, it will be my ticket to freedom, as indeed it was. We're going to get into how this con game unfolded after a short break. We are visiting with Marguerite Fox and talking about her book, The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. Constant Wonder continues in a moment. I'm Marcus Smith. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. Marguerite Fox is with us. She's author of The Confidence Men, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. Marguerite, uh, this kind of mushrooms from just a, 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 a diversion from the, the boredom of being in a POW camp, and, and suddenly uh, uh, this Harry Jones starts to see that he can, uh, together— with his accomplice, if I can call him an accomplice, Cedric Hill, they can maybe spring themselves loose from uh, incarceration here, and and it's all going to hinge on the uh, the credulous people around them, the the gullible people. At what point does Cedric Hill play a role in this? Well, uh, the the Ouija board experiments with spiritualism start purely as a lark in early 1917. And Jones, who has a superb visual memory, very quickly realizes he can work this ersatz drinking glass planchette with his eyes closed and still hit the right letters to spell out words. So he convinces an increasing number of his fellow captives that he's able to communicate with the spirit world. And he's no fool. He has one of the ghosts he contact be a saucy wench named Sally who tells them all these ribald things. And so of course the men who you know have not had much female contact for years are eating it up. And he gets more and more people to believe. Each night, the group around the Ouija board grows larger and larger. And finally, one of his captors, this hilarious young interpreter known as the Pimple, takes Jones aside and he says, the sentries have told me that you are a student of spiritism. Do you think the spirit can find a buried treasure? And Jones thinks, aha, here's my ticket out. So over many, many months, he gradually spins a tale because narrative is everything. And like Scheherazade, he's 
playing out narrative for his life. He spins a tale of a rich Armenian who lived in Yozgad, who anticipating the terrible coming genocide of 1915, converts his wealth to gold and buries it somewhere in the region. No one knows where, but as a spirit medium, Jones joining forces with Cedric Hill, vaunted as the other great spirit medium in the camp, will gradually learn from the spirit world various clues as to the location of the treasure. And these two noble mediums, selfless, renouncing all profit, will happily lead their captors to the treasure's location, if only those captors will take the prisoners on the road far, far from camp in search of it. So if all went well with this remarkable con, Jones and Hill would be led on the path to freedom by the camp's iron-fisted commandant and the Ottoman government would be paying their travel expenses for their escape. If, however, at any point their con were discovered or even suspected, it would mean a bullet in the back for each of them. Now, I don't want to give away too much here. And so uh, maybe at some point, well, I just have to ask you, does this deception actually pay off? Because somewhere in this story, they have to also fake that they're hanging themselves as people who are suicidal. And maybe there's, they start feigning insanity. I don't know. Is there an easy way to get from the Ouija board to the, the faked hangings? Well, here's what I love. I'm a sucker for caper films, things like the Ocean's Eleven movies. And if you think about the plot of a caper film, everything is planned out to the letter. The the robbers know when the watchman makes his rounds. They know the combination to the safe. They know what time the street is going to be empty. But then at the 11th hour, something always goes wrong. You know, the getaway car gets parked in or gets a flat tire because if that didn't happen, there'd be no drama. And in this real life story, exactly the same thing happens. Just as the buried treasure con game is on the eve of success, and they are literally poised not only to have their captors lead them out of Yozgad, but to actually kidnap those captors, get a boat, sail to join the British forces in Cyprus, and turn their bound and gag captors over to the British, Everything goes south. They are inadvertently betrayed. Something goes horribly wrong. They have to revert to plan B. And plan B involves Jones and Hills getting themselves admitted to a mental hospital in Constantinople, then the capital, Istanbul today, where if they can convince some of the foremost psychiatrists in Eastern Europe that they have actually lost their minds, there is the slender, slender chance that they would be repatriated to Britain in an official exchange of sick, sick prisoners. So that is the much darker turn that the story takes two thirds of the way through. Do they actually risk their very own lives in trying to stage uh, uh, suicide attempts? They absolutely do. As their captors are transporting them to the mental hospital, which again, because of the infrastructure there, wartime conditions is a journey of many, many, many days by cart and foot and rail. They realize that to make themselves convincing as madmen because repatriation is absolutely contingent on their being admitted to the psychiatric hospital, they had better stage a suicide attempt with witnesses present on the road. So one night on the road to Constantinople, Jones and Hill, in the presence of the pimple who is accompanying them as translator, and two of their guards actually hang themselves. As they say, we were going to hang ourselves within limits. But if you hang yourself within limits, a fraction of a second can convert your sham suicide into the real thing. It, it's very dark and very terrifying, but in Jones's later recounting, also darkly funny. 
So I want to re- retrace a few steps here. Back in the camp at, at Yozgad, they actually convince the pimple and whoever else is there in power. They're, they convince them that they're, uh, that they're mentally ill, and this is how they get on the road to Constantinople, and then they have to just sort of buttress that, that thesis of their insanity with a, a sham suicide. Correct. As strange as that sounds, you have nailed it. Um, right. It's just one of those old, the Ouija board plot explodes. You have to suddenly make yourself crazy and hang yourself within limits stories. <laughs> it's one of those, is it? <laughs> it? It's same old genre. It's the usual thing. Yeah. Um, there's a category for it on your favorite books. <laughs> okay. And so once on the eve of success with the treasure hunt, which will be much easier on Jones and Hill physically, when that goes south, they realize their only hope is to get themselves admitted to the mental hospital. So they have to become convincing madmen. So as I say, this is the con within the con. It's confidence game part two. And so even before they go off on the road to the mental hospital, they don't bathe for days at a time. They force themselves not to sleep for days at a time to get a kind of deranged look in their eyes. They don't comb their hair for days at a time. They leave the room that they occupy together in a Yozgat house strewn with litter and empty tin cans and rotten food and slop pails. It you know, looks like the Collier brothers. And so indeed, they managed to persuade first local doctors in the town of Yozgad and then their captors that they are mad and they are thus put on the road to the Constantinople hospital uh, and during which time they proceed to hang themselves within limits. You know, that's a whole new phrase for me, to hang oneself within limits. It just sounds preposterous. It sounds risky, but but absolutely unscientific at the same time. Um, I, I have to ask you this. This is the burning question for me. Is all of this self-reported by these two gents? Self-reported by the two gents. They both wrote memoirs, Joneses, in... 1919, interestingly, the point of his book was to be a cautionary tale about how easy it was for anyone to become a spiritualist charlatan because such people continued to prey on gold star families, bilking them out of their life savings on the hollow promise that they would be able to contact their fallen husbands, brothers, sons, etc. Cedric Hill wrote a memoir much later called The Spook and the Commandant, published posthumously in 1975. Those were my starting points. Happily, there are memoirs by several other prisoners who were held at Yozgad at the time, who, although they were not involved in the plot in any way and had no knowledge of the plot until after the war, Jones and Hill kept it dead secret. but they also talk about attending seances. They talk about what they later learned the con game to have been. So we had corroboration there. And we have additional corroboration of their time in the hospital from uh, British prisoners at some of the other POW camps elsewhere in Turkey who happened to have been in that hospital at the same time. So there are all of these sources plus just the myriad sources that I spent a year or more reading on the psychology of con games, the psychology of magic tricks. One of the reasons Cedric Hill was such a great collaborator for Jones was that he was a brilliant semi-professional magician. And so they literally use magic tricks at various points during the initial con to reinforce belief among their captors. all sorts of stuff. One of the most fascinating things I had to learn was why does a planchette, you know, from the Ouija board that we all bought at Woolworths when we were kids, why does it seem to move under its own steam? And there is a physiological reason for that, first identified in the mid 19th century and wonderfully studied scientifically in the late 19th century by a researcher, an American woman named Gertrude Stein. And when I read that, I thought, oh, what a funny coincidence. She has the same name as the avant-garde writer 
It was the avant-garde writer. <laughs> As an undergraduate at Radcliffe, she was a student of the great psychologist William James, brother of Henry James, and the very first thing she ever published was a scientific paper in the 1890s on why a planchette moves when nobody is actually moving it. It seems to move by itself. So Gertrude Stein makes a cameo in this book. <laughs> so uh, you just got to tell me that at some point you said, this is a tall tale and they have spun this yarn so beautifully, but it's just a little over the top. And, uh, and is that what sent you off looking for corroboration? Well, of course, if I've learned nothing else in 30 years as a journalist, 24 of them at the New York Times corroborate everything. And when I lecture to young journalists and students in general about writing obits, I say, I will check everything above the level of George Washington was the first president. And if I'm tired, I might even check that. <laughs> so of course, of course, all of this had to be corroborated, but uh, the internet made it very easy. And within, you know, less than a day, I was absolutely secure that this was something that really happened. I mean, Jones is a very, very sober, upright, moral, rigorously, intellectually honest guy that comes through loud and clear in the writing. And um, if anything, he pl apparently played down some of the outlandishness of this. But his book, The Road to Endor, documents in really exhaustive detail, it's almost 400 pages, every single thing he did because he was able to make secret transcripts of a lot of the fake seances he held for his captors and they were eventually smuggled out of Turkey and they became the source material for his book. So I have had and have no qualms whatsoever about the authenticity of this. They were so good at seancing, if that's the right verb there. They were so <laughs> good at it that... Um... Even back home after the war, there were people uh, of their acquaintance who they could not disabuse of the notion that they were spiritual media, media, mediums. <laughs> oh, media, mediums, right, uh, spirit guys. There we go. Uh, that, that's absolutely true. And that was fascinating for me. Um, after the war, they confessed to some of the prisoners who had also survived and since been liberated they confessed confess their whole scheme and people refused to believe it. These were you know, intelligent, educated men, but they had become so invested and Jones had been so persuasive about the power to reach out to the world beyond. They really didn't want to be disabused of that. And that was interesting to me because one of the two central questions that I set out to answer, broader questions beyond how could this scheme have worked, was what allows a master manipulator, be he a seance guy or a modern day advertiser, a modern day political demagogue, a cult leader, what allows him to foment and sustain belief over a mass, mass of people and correspondingly what makes that mass of people persist in believing ideas that are demonstrably false and persist in believing those ideas in the face of thundering counter evidence? And it goes without saying that the answers to those questions are very, very relevant for some of the false beliefs that have been abroad in the land in our own yeah, time. I was going to say, you're on to something here that really matters to us today. Yes, indeed. And it's certainly true that these masters of influence, be they con men, stage magicians, advertisers, politicians, have known how to foment belief and even foment belief in ideas that they know are not true. They've known how to do that since the dawn of man. Right. But in modern times, abetted by social media, where a bad idea can go around the world in seven league boots in two seconds, the answers to these questions seem to me more urgent to consider than at any time before. So without laying it all out, I just want to ask this. In the course of telling about these two deceivers, do you offer anything 
more than just an implicit understanding of how we might inoculate ourselves against being deceived? Well, that I think I will leave up to the reader. Um, I didn't feel it was incumbent on me to write a prescription because uh, deception can take many forms. But I would say, just be wary. Think about the rhetoric. Don't just passively swallow it. Analyze where it comes from, from whom it comes, what the sub rosa intent of that rhetoric might be, and think just possibly, is this person trying to persuade me to believe something that isn't true? You know what I would say, actually, here? I would say, if you find out that somebody is calling you behind your back, the pimple, don't trust them. He didn't know. Uh, He he, he never knew. (laughs) They used his real name while addressing him. One uh, wonderful footnote uh, I found, and again, it's a, a real footnote in the book, is I had a, he was very, very short, this young man. His name was Moisa Eskenazi. He was a young Ottoman Jewish soldier, about 20 years old, very, very short. There's actually a group picture of the camp leader. It's in the book, and he's you know way down there in the foreground. Um, but another source for that nickname, and this came from my husband, who is a film critic and film scholar, is there was a string of silent comedies in Britain made between 1912 and 1918, short films starring a character called Pimple. And he was a baggy pants buffoon played by Fred Evans, who was a well-known stage comic. And the Pimple films depicted him as this kind of childlike bumbler, which was a bit like the Pimple at Yozgad, who got into a series of scrapes. These pimple films were widely seen in Britain, so much so that they were said to rival Charlie Chaplin's early films in popularity. So the name may have been influenced by that as well. (laughs) Well, there are so many ins and outs to this story. There's no way to cover it all, but you have certainly succeeded in whetting the appetite for (laughs) anybody who wants to pursue this further. What a story, uh, the improbability of it all. And yet I'm going to you sound like I should believe you. Uh, you sound like that you're leveling with me that these two men told their story accurately. You even said they downplayed it. That's hard to believe, but uh, wow, what a story. Thank you. And of course, for anyone who is still a doubting Thomas among us, I can say only read the book and make up your own mind. <laughs> Marguerite Fox, a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Marcus. My pleasure. Marguerite Fox is author of The Confidence Man, How Two Prisoners of War Engineered the Most Remarkable Escape in History. I'm still just incredulous at the idea of the faked suicides in that story. A remarkable con job. You know, P.T. Barnum never did say a sucker is born every minute, but that doesn't mean it's not true. However often suckers are born, the, the consequences of being gullible can be disastrous. We're going to look at the one, one of the very most dramatic and most disastrous con jobs in all of history when we return to Constant Wonder in just a moment. I'm Marcus Smith. You're listening to Constant Wonder. We just heard about an elaborate hoax by two English POWs that sprang them loose from prison in Turkey. They played on the greed of their captors. Why are great con artists so persuasive? I put that question to Maria Konnikova. She is author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. I want you to hear a highlight of our conversation. It centers on one of the most notorious and deadly cons in history, perpetuated by a pecunious Scotsman by the name of Gregor MacGregor. So for this, we need to go back in time about 100 years to 1822. We have a Scottish man, Gregor McGregor, who makes an announcement. He says that he is actually a prince. Well, he calls it a kazik of a new land called Poyer, um, and that Poyer is located in Honduras. And This land is just absolutely incredible. The fertility is just 
unparalleled, the water, so refreshing, so wonderful. The opportunities are just limitless to cultivate this place and to make it your own. He even says that there's gold in the riverbeds. And this is coming at a time where Scotland isn't exactly going through a period of growth. Um, There are no Scottish colonies, um, and the land is not particularly fertile. So a lot of people listen to this and say, oh, wow, this sounds pretty good. And he even sweetens the deal. He says, guys, not only does this land exist, but I'm looking for people to go and colonize it. I mean, basically, it's just like literally picking up gold off of the street. That's what you're going to get if you come to Poirier. And people listen. People are ready and willing to believe him. The timing is right. The way that he phrases it is so wonderful. And even for the skeptics among them, he has so many great things that are going to convince them. So there's a book that he gives them by Thomas Strangeways, who's a doctor um, about Poirier. Now we'll later find out that it's actually McGregor himself who's written the book, but it seems like it's some other totally different expert. Um, And it works. People invest money and they don't just invest money. And he raises, by the way, the equivalent of billions today. So he raises a lot of money. And he also convinces hundreds and hundreds of people to upend their lives and to go to Poirier to be the first explorers. So there are seven ships worth of settlers who are ready to cross the Atlantic and to go to this mythical new world. Two of them set out, the Honduras Packet and the Kennersley Castle, and they have about 250 passengers. And when they arrive, they realize that this is nothing like what McGregor has promised. There's just nothing there. It's barren land. There's just not only nothing for them, but it seems like it's actually going to be perilous. There are mosquitoes, there are wild animals, there are swamps. This is just desolate land. Um, And the Scotsmen start dying. And luckily, the other five ships are turned around in time. um, And some people are rescued um, by a passing ship that's on its way to Belize. So not everyone dies, but hundreds do die. Um, And McGregor is sent back. Um, So it's all a fraud. He has to leave Scotland. And we think that he's a reformed man, except then he goes to France and does the exact same thing all over again. Oh, my gosh. You know, this story, this this would be funny, except for those deaths and and the and the extortion or the the scheming. I mean, I saw the music man and there was a con man there, too. But that's kind of funny. Right. And this is serious, serious (laughs) business. It is. It is. And I think that's what a lot of people tend to forget when we're dealing with con artists. I mean, even I, who spent three years among con artists, would find myself forgetting this. You listen to these stories and you're like, oh, my God, how cool. This guy just created this country and he created this new reality. And we tend to idolize them, but it comes at a very significant human cost. And I think that you have to walk a fine line between, you know, telling the stories and realizing, you know, the stories can be fun. However, the con artists are criminals and they're really horrible human beings who don't care how many people they kill, how many lives they ruin. Now, just a little bit of more flesh on the bones of who this guy was, because uh, your average Scotsman isn't just going to find a way to the new <laughs> world and then be able to, you know, sail around and come up with schemes. He was... I guess, kind of important? Yeah, he was the son of a local banker, um, and bankers were quite important at the time, so he had some family money. People knew who he was. Um, But then he also kind of created this mystique for himself. He said that, I'm royalty, you know, I'm aristocracy, I'm a prince. And you might think that people would fact-check that, but all we have to do is look at how much fake royalty we have to this day in 2020, how many of these scams we have that don't get fact-checked to realize that actually people just want to believe it. I guess he developed a good personal brand. 
Um, he absolutely did. He absolutely did. You know, um, branding, it turns out, has been important for many, many years. And one of the things that we learn is that one of the ways that con artists, well, one of the ways that anyone can persuade, but con artists use it surreptitiously and to malicious ends, is by branding, is by representing yourself as the type of person that others want to affiliate with. I mean, we're drawn to power. We're drawn to powerful people. We're drawn to people who we think could help us. We want them to rub off on us. It's this kind of psychological halo effect. We think that, you know, oh, maybe some of that prestige will rub off on us if we just rub shoulders with them. And we want to be part of that. And I think a lot of what branding does is make people into images of individuals who we want to affiliate with. And he did this for himself. I mean, he created not just his own persona, but then he created a book. He created, he took out ads in all of these newspapers. He actually created these glossy photographs and magazines. I mean, he went all out. He spent a lot of money on this deception. I think he knew he was going to be able to raise a lot more money um, by doing that. But still, there was a pretty substantial financial outlay to make this not just plausible, but desirable. Now, with your background, understanding the psychology of how we become so vulnerable to this, I do, before we're done, I want to talk about some of those things either to look for. We have here something of a cautionary tale, a a classic story, one of the biggest stories in history, actually, if you start counting the the money that he was able to amass. I I just want to know, before we leave the, the, the nuts and bolts of the story behind, did he ever get his comeuppance? Um, So he did. It ends up that France was actually much more vigilant than England. So he did this again. I'm sorry, not than England, than Scotland. So he did this again. He went to France um, and he was able to raise a lot of money. He had another another boatload of settlers ready to go. Um, And then France had this kind of aha moment. They said, wait, all of a sudden, we have all of these passport applications to a country that we've never even heard of. Um, let's dig into this a little bit. So they did, um, and they figured out that this was a con, and they threw him in jail. Um, and then he was sent back to Edinburgh. Um, and once he came back to Edinburgh, the original Poirier investors were really pissed off at him, um, and so they started pursuing him. Um, and he had to flee once more, so he actually went to Venezuela, to Caracas, um, and he died there. Maria Konnikova is author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. I'm Marcus Smith. Our show is a production of BYU Radio.